Simon Wickham Smith was uh, born in England and uh, educated at uh, King's College London and uh, the University of uh, Washington. He spent his younger days as a monk in Tibet. He has been researching and translating Mongolian literature uh, since the late 1990s. He currently lives in New Jersey and uh, teaches at uh, Rutgers University. His publications include a translation of poems The End of uh, the Dark Era. Sun Cranes and Other Stories, uh, Modern Mongolian Short Fiction and uh, a monograph, Politics and Literature in Mongolia, 1921-1948. to 1948. In this episode, uh, Simon spoke about his uh, journey into translations, uh, Mongolian literature and uh, about the book, Sun Cranes and uh, Other Stories. You can buy the book using the link uh, given in the show notes. Please share your feedback on this episode either on the Spotify app or through the link provided in the show notes. You can follow Harshaniyam podcast on Spotify, Apple or search any of your favorite podcasting apps. Welcome to our podcast Harshaniyam. Thank you Anil. It's good to be here. Mongolian, Tibetan and Manchu. How did you get introduced to these languages and uh, why did you choose to get into translations? So these languages all in the kind of Central Asia, Southern Central Asia region. And I've been interested in Asian studies for most of my adult life. But the real origin of all of this is in the fact that I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk for some years in my 20s. And at the beginning of my 20s, when I first became interested in Buddhism, I wanted to be able to understand the prayers that I was saying in Tibetan. So I learned Tibetan. And at the same time, because I knew that Mongolian Buddhism had come from Tibet, I learned the old script of Mongolian and I also learned how to read it and understand it. My Tibetan at that time was relatively good because I was really focused on understanding the prayers and the text that I was reading. But my Mongolian was not so good. Fast forward about eight or nine years. So I've stopped being a monk by that time. And I started to actually work more academically on Tibet and a little bit on Mongolia. I was working on the sixth Dalai Lama, uh, the Tibetan um, text of his so-called secret life, which is really a life of, it's about his practices and, and, and about his strange wanderings around Mongolia, actually, which may or may not be true. We don't know. I'd like to think that they probably are. And uh, so I did this translation of his life story. And as I was researching that, I came across a reference to a 19th century Mongolian monk called Dantanraksha. And Dantanraksha was somehow similar framed as somehow similar to 
Sangajatsa, the sixth Dalai Lama, insofar as he was a, a drinker, he was a womanizer, and he also was very highly developed in Buddhist practice and in Buddhist philosophy. And he also wrote poems, like the Sikh Dalai Lama did. I got it in my head, this fantasy of translating his uh, poetry, because I found poetry, I've always been interested in poetry, and I had mo- a little bit of Mongolian by that point, and I thought it might be interesting to, to, to do it. You see how naive I was. And so I managed to get hold of a, a text, a, what was purported to be as complete works of Danton Raja. It actually seems basically to be a complete works, although I think there are more poems than were in this book. But anyway, I got hold of this book, and I started at the beginning, and I worked through the text. There are about, I don't know, 300 poems. And I used a dictionary. At first, I had to look up almost every word. But by the end, I had some some vague idea what I was doing, right? And so I got to the end, and I thought, now I'm just going to read over and check what I've done. So I went back to the very first one that I'd done, and I read it, and it was complete rubbish. It was dreadful. It was, it was a really bad translation. And by that time, I knew that my interpretation was wrong, right? So maybe I'd found a word that was similar and hoped for the best. <laughs> so I did it all again. So this takes about, I don't know, two, three years. So by the time I get through the second time, I, I thought it was actually not so bad. So I decided that I would write to someone, try and find someone in Mongolia. This was 2006. So we had internet, we had access to Mongolia. And so I found this guy who was from Mongolia, and he seemed to be interested in poetry. And his name was Mindoyo. And so I wrote to him and I said, because I, I, I thought it would be a good idea to be courteous and to say to some random Mongolian who might be interested in poetry, I've translated this text. I just want you to know that someone out there enjoys this text. Okay, so he wrote back to me and he said, thank you for your contribution to Mongolian literature. This is my paraphrase. Actually, later I discovered that it was actually his assistant who was writing in English. Because I wrote in English. Because I didn't think my Mongolian was quite good enough to be able to write. And so I thought I was getting this direct from him. But he doesn't speak English, not even now. So I have to communicate in Mongolian with him. But anyway, so his assistant wrote, Thank you for your contribution to Mongolian literature. I am very pleased that this has been done, and I would like to invite you to Mongolia. So he invited me to Mongolia, and uh, he was very generous. He paid for my plane ticket from England and for accommodation, and I met him. I went to the center of the Dantan Ravja, where he was a monk, where he his monastery. And, and, but what Mindoyo did... Mindoyo is one of the most important writers in Mongolia. He's not just a random guy who writes poetry. He introduced me. He has, over the last 16 years, become 
a very dear friend and a, co a colleague in helping me to transmit Mongolian literature into the outside world outside Mongolia. And he has introduced me to, I would say, basically all the people that I know in the literary world in Mongolia. So he has really made Sun Cranes possible, right? Because without him, I wouldn't have been able to do this. Manchu is a completely different thing. Manchu, I don't really know Manchu very well. I don't speak Manchu. I don't study Manchu. But what I can do is I, I know the language and I know um, how to read it because it's, it's the same script as the old Mongolian script. So what happens is that when we get someone who's interested in the Qing dynasty at my university, I'm the one who teaches them Manchu. And then they go away and they do something with it. I have a student now who is actually really, I mean, he's gone like 20,000 leagues away from my puny ability. And he's now doing a PhD in part through, through using Manchu. So I am an enabler in Manchu, but better than the Mongolian I know. And so that's my story about translation. I fell into translation, Anil. I, I'm not a tra I'm not really a translator. I'm not a poet. Love Mongolia. And I love the excitement of translating, the intellectual excitement. I think I'm a lot better now than I used to be. I don't know where I don't know where I would stand on the hierarchy, a success hierarchy of, of translators. But Columbia University Press is happy enough to translate my work, to, to publish my work. So I, I must be okay. Coming from a reader uh, 8,000 miles away, mm. I loved your translations. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very glad. Yes, I'm very glad. I'm digressing. Uh, do you meditate? I don't sit in cross-legged position and meditate like that. But I have a very, I have a kind of a strange practice. I, I meditate through doing qigong and um, tai chi. So I use. I, I don't like sitting. I'm not a very good sitter, which probably makes me a very bad meditator. But the the meditative mind that we are encouraged to develop, I try to develop that through movement meditation. This is a standard movement meditation in China is Qigong uh, and Tai Chi. But I used to when I was in uh, when I was a monk, I, I, I used to um, sit. Yeah. I am curious. Uh, how do you compare uh, the experience of translation with uh, experience that you go through while you meditate? That's a really fascinating question. I think for me, when, so if I am translating a, a poem, I can generally see the whole poem and I can automatically scan through what is it, what it's vaguely going to be about. But if I'm translating a story, I deliberately do what the reader does and start translating from the first word. I never read it before I translate it. I have to have a certain mental clarity in order to start translating, not to be affected by what I might have read from this same author or something 
completely different that I've read, right? So I need, I, I, I do need a certain uh, clarity. Whether that's a meditative clarity, it's, I, I, I don't think, it's more of an intellectual clarity. But intellectual clarity and meditative clarity kind of work together somehow, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's a really interesting question. I, yeah, I, I think that's what I would say. Yeah. You understand how you get, how you start. How do you look at this first word of this text? And how do you move along the, the lines from that? Please tell us about uh, Mongolia, its people, and uh, the current uh, socio-political situation. For those who are looking at this book, most of the stories, I would say, were written during the 70 years between the 1921 revolution, Soviet-led revolution, Soviet-backed revolution, and the 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 uh, 1990, when um, Mongolia had a democratic revolution and the Soviet uh, Union pulled out. Um, I think most of the stories were written during that time. And that was a period, um, if anyone knows about the, uh, the, this period in, in Europe um, and Central Asia was a period of uh, communist rule, censorship, waves of repression and suppression and oppression and literature which literature was one of the most important um, bulwarks against this communist establishment but it was also in some ways the most important medium through which the government was able to promote its ideology but more in more general terms, Mongolia is uh, a country bigger than Western Europe. It has grassland, it has desert, it has forest, it has very flat areas towards China, and very mountainous areas in the middle and to the west. Its people are traditionally nomadic herders, but I think now more than half of the population are sedentary, is sedentary. There's about, I think there are about 3 million people, maybe, maybe just over 3 million people in a country the size of Western Europe. So you can see how thinly populated it is. And the, and the nomadic herders live in what's called gear, which we also known as yurts, which comes from Russian yurta, but the Mongolian word is ger. They, they herd five types of animal, that's goats and sheep and cows and horses and uh, camels. And then Ulaanbaatar, which is really the only really big city, is like a very bustling Central Asian hub. It has more and more Western influence. It has a huge number of cars, tremendously uninspiring traffic jams. It's a really great city to be in. It's tough. Mongolia is tough. 
but then maybe I'm a kind of lily-livered English <laughs> weakling. But I, I, I find Mongolia quite tough. But, but, but it's a really fun place to be. All your listeners should come. Mongolia has always been Mongolia, but it, during the Qing, it was um, sucked into China. And then since the Qing in 1911, since 1911, it's been independent. But for three years, 1919 to 19, no, two years, 1919 to 1920, 1921, it was again sucked into China. And then it was liberated by the Soviets in 1921. But then until 1990, it was an independent state, but it was beholden to uh, the Soviet Union ideologically and almost entirely financially. And since 1990, it's been independent. Now, please uh, introduce us to contemporary Mongolian literature. It's a literature which is quite traditional in some ways. So a writer like Mindoyo, who is now 70 years old, he writes in a very, very independent style, very dreamy, very mystical in a way. But his formal style is quite traditional. He also doesn't really think about the city. He doesn't write things about urban life. He doesn't write things about urban people, urban life. So he is really at one end of the spectrum. At the other end, we have a lot of the younger generation who are writing about young people in Mongolia. And young people in Mongolia listen to K-pop, and they... They do what young people all over the world do. And when I say young people up to maybe 35, there are lots of young writers who are interested in the world outside, who write about Mongolian experiences in the world outside, in, in Europe or in um, the United States. In fact, I was just working on a story by a woman called Bayeskalan. And the, this story is set in Mongolia, but in a way it's also about, um, topically, it's about Israel. And Israel and Judaism and that kind of thing. And I translated the story by a guy called Enkbold, who is now, he's about the same age as Mindoyo, actually. But he lived in the States for a very long time, and this is about small-town America. It's very interesting how some people like Mindoyo are very traditional, but there are also people who are really looking to the world outside, to Europe or to the United States, and thinking about how Mongolians relate to these other countries, either by, either through the vision of actually being there or through some imagination, right? So some people who have lived in the States like Inc. may write with real knowledge, whereas some people who have not been to Israel, I don't think Baiskalan has been to Israel, but she writes in such a way that 
um, you can tell that she's thinking about how a Mongolian would be in Israel and what, what, how Mongolians think about Israel. Right? There are a lot of other things, but I think you, you, you talk about the demographic changes. What I haven't really noticed is any queer fiction, for instance, is not something that happens in Mongolia yet. Um, the LGBTQ community is very small and not generally very vocal. And I'm sure there have been writers who are LGBTQ writers, but they haven't been out. So they just write and if their works are good, they're, they're good and if they're not. But yeah, it really covers a very broad spectrum of ideas, but a lot of even the younger writers are still writing about more traditional Mongolia. There's a kind of a historical novel. At, at some stage, there, there have been historical novel crazes where every young writer writes about Genghis Khan or writes about some um, old, old traditions, old ideas. But the language is also becoming more modernist in some people's work. Anuda, who we're going to talk about, he's been dead for almost 30 years now, but um, he is very popular with young people now because of the way in which he wrote. Um, the material that he was writing about very uh, is very black, very dark, urban, uh, highly influenced by Soviet, late Soviet literature in the 80s, by the Chernuka movement in, in uh, the Soviet um, So, yeah, and also literature. Reading literature is very popular. Young people read literature. My students here don't read literature. But Mongolian students, yes, they read literature. And young people read literature. And they read people like Mindoim, just like they read people like Anuda. So there is a breadth and a, an interest in literature there. Other than the short story collection that we are going to talk about, The Sun Cranes, you also translated a monograph of uh, politics and uh, literature in Mongolia. Interestingly, the other book, The Secret Life of uh, Sixth Dalai Lama. Yeah. Politics and literature is a monograph. It's about it's about politics and literature in Mongolia. It's about how um writers contributed ideologic to the ideological momentum of the Soviet led government from nineteen twenty one to nineteen forty eight, so the first half of the Soviet period. It deals with material which most Mongolians might not know very much about, and people don't know about these writers in the West. It really puts it in context. I'm not really interested in politics in, in, in a broad sense, but I wanted to, I started this book wanting to write about literature. And then I realized that because most of these writers were writing about ideology, and many of the writers ended up in prison because they didn't do the right thing. I had to write about politics too. So I somehow trained myself in the Mongolian politics of this period too. 
But yeah, so that so that's really what it's about. It's about the first half of the Soviet period, and it deals with writers and themes, ideology that the party wanted to promote, and the writers were told to write about it. Yeah, I find it a really fascinating period because Mongolian literature was primarily oral, and people were primarily illiterate until the revolution. And yet by the end, maybe of the 30s, a lot of the population could read, and there were writers were beginning to write stuff that was very influenced by and similar to European um, literature. It was a very rapid and very exciting improvement or change, maybe is a better word. So they started writing short stories and they began to write novels. The first Mongolian novel um, was written in 1951. And since then, they haven't stopped. And there are a lot of really great novelists. But, and, and poetry has always been, oral poetry or written poetry has always been very deep in the heart of Mongolians. And so that you, you have a lot of, a lot of ideology transmitted through poetry and also, of course, through plays. Because if your audience can't read, then they can at least go to a play. Right. So that's really what that book is about. It's very academic. Most people will read it for to to read half a chapter for their own research. <laughs> it, it's not something I don't think many people will read it from start to finish <laughs> like, like a cool novel. But <laughs> I enjoyed writing it. And I loved I loved doing the research. The research is really fascinating because. Um, like I say, most people have not really explored this. And Mongolian writers, uh, Mongolian literary critics and literary scholars, uh, every 10 or 15 years, the government made them write a history of Mongolian literature because the, the ideology changed, so they had to rewrite it. So I don't imagine that anybody really enjoyed writing that. It's like kind of turgid, uninteresting lists, although it's fascinating for me because it's lists of books. And seeing how the ideology frames these books is really interesting. Yeah, but you don't get very much insight into the authors and you don't get very much insight into the books, actually, because you know what's coming. This book doesn't address this particular ideology appropriately, so we're going to ban that. But this one really is great. This one really tells us how the the working classes suffer under, under the Qing, and now they are joyous and happy under our wonderful system. So we're going to promote this one. And that changes every few years. So they have to pull out their old manuscripts and retype them. And they have to retype their manuscripts. And that gets published as the history of Mongolian literature. <laughs> and that there are about five or six over, over this 70 year period, there are about five or six histories of Mongolian literature, all of which are slightly different ideologically. But since 1990, I don't think anybody has ever written 
any anybody has really written a history. <laughs> so this book really tells. It's got a lot of facts and a lot of texts and references, and hopefully an interest, a relatively interesting narrative too. And it's really pulling as much material as I can together, because the books are. I wouldn't say they're in great danger because some libraries have some, but there are a lot of books that we don't have anymore because I spoke with this writer in Mongolia once and he was very old. And I said, do you have any copies of old literary journals from like the 40s or the 50s? And he said, I used to, but in the 90s, when the Soviets pulled out, we didn't have enough heating. We didn't have enough heating to heat our houses. So in the middle of winter, I burnt them to keep warm, right? So then they go up in flames to keep him warm. Well, thank God that he survived. But it's really sad that all this material, and I'm sure among those went some books that he didn't want anymore. If a, if a literary writer does that, then most people are going to just throw them away. If they need to keep warm, they're going to, you and I would too, if we didn't, uh, I have a whole bunch of books behind me, they would go in, right? So yeah, these books disappear. At least my book lists, lists a lot of really significant texts. So that if we can't find them anymore, at least we have some approximation of a description in my book. And also, to be fair, in the history of Mongolian literature, too. Yeah. Now, tell us about uh, the other book, about uh, the sixth uh, Dalai Lama. Yeah, the sixth Dalai Lama, Tsangyan Jatso, yeah, born in 1683 and died possibly in 1706, or, if this book is to believe, 1746. This is about, Tibetan literature has this tradition of what's called Sangnam, and Sangnam are secret or hidden histories, hidden biographies. And what that really means is that they're not the outward activity of the monk or the lama or the, the practitioner. They're not the outward activity. He went here and he went there. But actually what happens inside? Right? So there are stories about realization okay basically but the 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 hidden story the hidden the, the secret history of the sixth dalai lama tells that instead of dying in 1706 when he was on he was being taken to beijing ostensibly to be killed we think by the qing emperor um for a whole lot of political reasons but he escaped and he just went off as a normal monk, a pilgrim. And he had all these amazing experiences, like he, he meets a man without a head. And when this man without a head, yeah, it's, 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 I don't know whether it's real or not, but we, we can make our own mind up about that. But when this man without a head needs to eat, he hits his stomach. And... They feed him by putting bar putting barley flour 
down one tube in his neck and water down another, and it bubbles up in the bottom, and he gets fed, right? So he does that, and he, he travels around with this guy, and they go to a, a lonely, ruined monastery, and they encounter dancing skeletons. And then, then he has a, then he has a zombie attack. And yet he meets yetis. He meets mm-hmm. yetis, um, who chase him. This yeti chases him, right? Yet, yeti chases him with a huge tree that he's ripped up. But also there are practices. He talks about some of the practices that he does. And then he ends up in, back in Lhasa. And then the end of the book <coughs> is a less fantastical section where he, where he builds a lot of monasteries. So this guy travels for a while undercover, and then he comes back and he builds a lot of monasteries as just a regular lama, a regular monk. And what do you make of it? The, the general idea in the West, is that it's fake. The general idea in Tibet is that it's true. Yeah. It, it, I, I, I can't imagine many Western scholars really believing it. But the, the truth is that our view is only our view. And there is no reason why, just because we have a scientific view, that we are right. That's absurd. So... What I say in the introduction is we have, we, we can have our opinion based on realist, realism and science, but also Tibetans who are not stupid, who do have brains, have this other perspective that actually, yes, he did survive. And the question of what, who then is the seventh Dalai Lama who was enthroned in 1720, 20, six years before this alternative Dalai Lama died, then the answer is that it's simply emanations of the same, of of the fifth Dalai Lama. It's impossible to know unless we find out that this book is written by some joker. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's an amazing book. I really enjoyed translating it. It's wild. It's completely wild. It's fantastic. Regarding translation of uh, Mongolian literature from Mongolian to English, are there any organizations uh, working for this? The only one that I know of, Anil, is Mindoyo's Mongolian Academy of Poetry and Culture. Uh, He has published my translations and the translations of a few Mongolians into English. So he is working extremely hard to promote that. But no, no no official organizations, no other organizations, as far as I know. You know it would be really great if more effort and more money could be put into it. And if more Western Western translators, English language translators or other languages, if they would do more to promote Mongolian literature. Now, please introduce us to the short story compilation, Sun Cranes and the Other Stories. 
So this is a book, I think, of 24, 24 stories, ranging from 1926 to 2012. These are, they, they cover the whole gamut of experiences in under the Soviet period and in the post-Soviet period. There are stories that are ideologically driven. There are stories that are love stories. Mongolians like love stories, just like we all like love stories. But they have a particular kind of rather traditional discourse. And it's very interesting to see how that discourse changes over time. And um, th there are stories which actually are not in here that I'm thinking of, where the, it, it's actually set in Ulaanbaatar, during the 50s, like the harshness of Ulaanbaatar during the 50s. But it's this love story is told in a very traditional, very elegant, and maybe we would think of a sexist way, right? So the, the, the woman has beautiful cheeks like, like roses and bright, shining eyes. And, but still, all this is a, a, against the backdrop of gritty urban Ulaanbaatar in, in the misery of the 1950s. But yeah, the majority of these stories are known by Mongolians, I would say. There have been a few, maybe three or four collections published in Mongolia of English language stories for tourists. And many of the stories in Sun Cranes, some of the stories in Sun Cranes, are the kind of thing that gets anthologized in these books. But I've also tried very hard to find obscure writers and to try and get their best and most interesting stories. There's one by a guy called Send called A Great Mystery, which I think is a fantastic story. It's a gothic story about this woman doctor who turns up at a collective farm and meets the manager who has a huge scar on his face. And over the course of the story, we discover that he had saved her from a snow leopard attack. I think it's a snow leopard attack. And he had wrestled this creature to the ground and got mauled. And at the end of the story, when he's driving her back to, to the uh, regional center, um, we have this feeling that there is some kind of love developing. Uh, it's such a beautiful, understated story. And Sen's work, he was a journalist, but his work is this is known, and it was obviously important in the 60s, which is where I got this, the text that I used from, but no one knows about Send now. And this is such a beautiful story, and it's such a great story. So you have things like that kind of, it's, it's very Russian in the, in, in the way that it, it's set up in this kind of snowy, snowy situation the guy drives her back in his troika and you can see that this kind of scarves 
sw- swooshing back in the air as they go, uh, and he's beating the horses forward with his with his whip. And yeah, it's like something from Doctor Shivago. And so, so you have this kind of feeling. You have this feeling, this very kind of Russian feeling, but it's a beautiful story. And there are other great stories. We're going to talk about Anuda, but there's also one by a woman called Ozitux, called Raoul and Raoul. Yeah, Raoul and Raoul, which is really a very odd, very highly modernist treatment of someone's life and very detailed, but very bizarre details that she includes. And it's, it's a very interesting way of looking at modern writing in Mongolia. And then there's another one by a guy called Batwyuk called Wings, which is about how people can fly. It's in the Himalayas, and there's this city where people fly in their dreams. And um, it, it's like social satire. But it's it's a really interesting collection. I think it's a really interesting collection. I tried to find the the most appropriate and most interesting stories. And your reaction is 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 very nice. I'm very glad that you enjoyed reading it. I think one of the one of the good things about this book, the collection that I've put together, is that it's very broad ranging and. Um, if you come to, if you come to read a, a book, if you buy a book from of translations of stories from a, a former communist country, maybe you're not really a hundred percent certain what kind of stuff you're going to get, whether it's all going to be ideology, but actually, it's not. There's very little ideology here, but you still get the feeling in many of these texts of the kind of looming presence of the of the government right simply in the language that's used and the colors and the way in which the the writing is constructed and i've tried very hard to show that um, so yeah if, if if you enjoy the if, if you enjoy the stories but you think that someone's watching you that's what i want <laughs> These uh, short stories were written by various authors. Tell us about the experience of uh, translating uh, these stories. I didn't start at the beginning and work my way through. This collection was really put together, has had been put together over maybe 10 years. <coughs> so I, I was just choosing stories translating them, finding new ones. I have a job. It's my hobby to translate. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, when I got bored of teaching or bored of grading, I would find it a story to translate. What I find most difficult about it, in fact, is not the voice of the author, but making Mongolian things accessible to Westerners, because most of us haven't been to Mongolia. And uh, coming to the story, Hulan, the ending is uh, really beautiful. The way the story ends, it's really beautiful. Probably 
one of my favorite stories uh, from the book. Now it's a that's one of my favorite stories and he wrote it over 30 years and it's supposed to be his it's supposed to be autobiographical but no one uh, there's been this kind of yeah there's kind of been this kind of hunt for trope in Mongolian literature um since uh, no one can find out who Hulan actually is and his wife is still alive and i think maybe when his wife finally dies maybe someone will come forward and say i was hulan but uh it wasn't his wife for sure and so we don't know who hulan was but we know that it is eden who is this protagonist yeah so it's a really interesting perspective on his life too yeah it's a really beautiful story and very tender and very beautifully expressed yeah and the other story everything it's very interesting the way it's written the way it's constructed all the sentences are very very short maybe two words or three words each sentence uh, is uh, two words or three words not more than that i i translated the story many years ago and then i met anuda's sister and she told me that actually he wrote in russian he because he was basically educated in russian so he spoke russian and mongolian fluently bilingual and so he wrote this originally in russian i don't speak russian i don't know really russian literature very well but he was really influenced by russian writers of the 1980s the kind of end of the soviet era writers and like i said earlier this chenukha idea of like black humor and every, everything's miserable and it's got a kind of rather nihilistic perspective which in this the story this is how the mongolian is and i haven't seen his russian manuscript but i i i'm pretty sure that um he translated into mongolian in the same way as he trans uh, he wrote the original now what's interesting about this story is that it really does new things with mongolian literature this is not a style that is that has been repeated and it's not a style that was used before anuda so this is his style very much it's very unusual and very kind of influential in the sense that people read anuda's work because of the style and because of the content but the the style is really interesting to people because it's so weird for mongolian writing these very short sentences and this repetition too which i find really interesting is like gertrude stein almost right now what are the projects uh, that you are currently working on right now actually i'm not really focused on any translation i'm writing a paper based on another translation that i did of a um 
the, the paper is about the Stakhanovite labor ideology in late Stalinist Mongolian literature. So there's this one book that I translated, this no- novella, which is about a, a woman who wants her factory to overprodu- over, overproduce at the end of the, the five-year plan of 1948 to 1952. She wants to get her factory producing and producing. She wants 600,000% production. It's all about this. Because, of course, at, at this stage, at the end of the... This was written in 1951. So at the end of the five-year plan, um, people were being encouraged to to overproduce and to really develop their ability to fulfill their quotas like 10, 10, 12, 20-fold in order to fulfill the quota of the five-year plan in general. So this is a highly ideological um, piece, another highly ideological piece. What I will be doing is uh, when Mindoyo finishes his next novel, which I think will be relatively soon, I will translate that. I'm also thinking to put together another book of short stories, but that's very much in a in a fetal phase right now. There are some writers from the there are some writers from the nineties, uh, including Enkbold, whom I mentioned earlier, and I haven't really looked at them, but they have a kind of interesting position in Mongolian literature because they are neither old nor are they young. In in during the nineties, when Mongolia went through a period of tremendous um economic decline, I think they were left out. Their work has not really been thought about very much. And I think they are really interesting, very unusual voices from this period and different kind of again it's in part quite modernist but also it's slightly left field slightly strange kind of surrealist but not quite maybe surrealist but um that is the kind of thing that i want to put in this new book i don't want so many old stories i want much more recent recent stories since the the fall of the soviet era and now please read a couple of paragraphs from one of the short stories in both uh, mongolian and in english so i chose the beginning of the ballad of the unweaned camel by mindoyo as a homage to my very dear friend but also because this is a, a really nice description of something quite weird hatl esni narin kholoid Negentom Hochchulu Tengdris Unachicha Yukeltig Uswell Chulubus Hiptichberger Temeboloi Tengem Murloch Dunhidik Shire Hoyabuchen Halspollen Jaljit Shurad Bujignasen Hai Yaland Yawlaj Tunig Ugich Sulbek Bolje Echenbulgin Ushik Melmin Hanud Nassin Sutten Nulims Bun 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 Burn 
Garchik enhu narinhan elsin hormoid narsushin aldat mulhajisn yumsan mulhaj mulhaj katsar gefte hormsangui There fell from the sky into the narrow sandy gorge of mountain pass a single huge blue stone. But if you were to look at it, you would not see a stone, but only a camel lying down. His two humps stood out against the sky, their skin sagging, weak and emaciated. He stood with his legs apart and slapped at the swarms of black flies with his tail, and even the grasses irritated him. Tears flowed from his eyes like pearls of spring water. And in those watery eyes, the sky stretched a deep blue to its farthest edges, and there rose a pale blue mountain which seemed to him to be in the way. Behind this mountain ran a great red pass, where soil tumbled down and where the water was sucked dry. In the skirts of the fine sand, he practiced walking ten paces at a time. And following the sun, he crept forward, meter after meter. And the farther he moved, the more the place lost its sting and grew attractive to him. This is also a very special story. The entire story is written from the perspective of a camel. So Mindoyo is really interesting for that. So his perspective is very much a post-humanist perspective. He, he thinks... As a nomadic herder, he was brought up on the border with China as a nomadic herder herding, herding sheep with a lot of camels too. And his, he was, he was educated really through stories by his mother when he was very young. And he has this relationship with story and relationship with the natural world in which Humans are really not the most important thing. They're only one part of the natural world, right? And so he writes from the point of view of this camel, I feel as though he really is the camel. We talk about writers being taken over by their character, but these are human characters, right? Like Dickens, for instance, taken over by Mrs. Micawber. But no, Mindoyo is taken over by this camel, and it, it's really amazing. Some of his some of his writing has this real profound sensitivity for the animals that he's talking about, right? And he writes about the weather like this, and about the, the landscape. So yeah, it, it's a tremendous reminder to us in the West, how we really should 
treat and think about the natural world thank you simon it's been such an engaging conversation and uh, i look forward to talking to you again it's my pleasure i know thank you